Simple Beep, episode 29, Software Packaging. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we're recording this episode a little bit in advance, but it's going to be released on December 26th, Boxing Day. And we decided that there would be no better topic for Boxing Day than some boxes. So we're dedicating this episode to software packaging, a thing that's really of the past, because most of our software these days, probably all of our software these days, doesn't actually come in a physical cardboard box anymore. But before we get to that, we do have a little bit of follow-up from our previous episode on kids' software. I have one here that I had actually done some research on and put maybe even in the outline for that show and then somehow skipped over it, but I think is a good one that's worth mentioning, which is a pretty well-known video game franchise, which is Prince of Persia. And I knew this game franchise mostly from consoles in the early 90s, like Super Nintendo. And it turns out that Prince of Persia was an original Apple II game. And the first Prince of Persia was later ported to many other platforms, but only after it picked up popularity and after the series had kind of taken off. But the series includes about 10 different games. There was even a terrible movie adaptation a year or so ago. I think I have the Flophouse episode uh, about that in my podcast queue right now. So uh, all good and bad things in the Prince of Persia series all came from an original Apple II game. I also have a bit of follow-up about Kid Picks because we kind of glossed over the origin story of the software, summarizing how the developer Craig Hickman had witnessed his young son trying to use Mac Paint and uh, realized that there is a need for something even simpler. But that was kind of stolen off of their quick Wikipedia page when, in fact, there is a full article called Kid Picks The Early Years written by Craig Hickman himself. And it's full of really interesting things like the 15 guiding principles he had in mind when developing the software. The first one is it should be easy and intuitive for a kid to use. And then there are a bunch. And the last one is, but it should still be fun and rewarding for adults, which I thought was pretty cool. It also talks about how when he was still doing it by himself, the very first version was black and white and kind of designed for the original Macintosh at its uh, smaller screen resolution. But by the time he finished it, there were color Macs with bigger screens available. So he decided to release uh, a version with color and a little bit of sound, which he called Kid Picks Professional. And it wasn't until he said that the irony of that wasn't lost on him that I realized why that's a funny name for a piece of software. I think I even made that joke last episode that you can't get serious graphic art done in Kid Picks. <laughs> but maybe you could. I'm also looking at this article and it's got... Lots of great pictures of the development process, uh, him and his kid. And then to transition a little bit to this episode, the original box art down at the bottom, including a Hebrew version, uh, which is really cool. And um, one of the features of the KidPix logo is that the P, where there's the hole in the P, is an eyeball. And they've even got that in the uh, in the alternate language versions. They made to, made sure to get that in there. Uh, so we'll put that article in our show notes. It's a good read. One last thing from our kids software episode. We mentioned a few of the games in the Super Solvers and Super Seekers series. I think I was most familiar with Treasure Mountain. Uh, and we got some feedback on Twitter from Stephen Hackett, who was on our show 
few episodes ago, and he said, please mention Gizmos and Gadgets, which is one of the Super Solvers titles that I actually wasn't familiar with. Yeah, me neither. But he sent us a link to a site that has lots of screenshots from it. It actually looks pretty interesting. You're the same uh, protagonist with the puffy coat and invisible face with the pop collar all the way up to your eyebrows. Uh, But it looks like it's a little bit more of a modular level design. You choose which levels to go into. And then, again, you have to solve puzzles. The interesting thing is that the puzzles are a lot more like the Widget Workshop game that I was familiar with where you're given different uh, tools and you have to construct things out of them. I guess the main purpose of the game is to create the gizmos and gadgets and then use them to defeat the Master of Mischief. So I don't know if uh, it'll be possible to get a copy of that, either a port or working under emulation, but it looks like it might be might be fun and maybe a little bit, uh, little bit less weird than the elves of Treasure Mountain. <laughs> All right. With that out of the way, let's move into software packaging. And the first category that we want to cover today are software boxes that came from Apple itself. Yeah, and I think we should start pretty much from the beginning. And some of Apple's earliest first-party software that was really well-known was that that went with the original Macintosh, and that's MacWrite and MacPaint. And it's also a very straightforward place to start with software packaging. So the art on these boxes are basically just screenshots. Well, there's a screenshot and then there's a photograph superimposed of a hand with a mouse. So to to indicate to you that this is how you interact with the software, of course, because that was a new paradigm for personal computing and for Apple computers uh, with the Macintosh. And the thing that I think is interesting about these two boxes, especially put side by side, is that one of them has become an iconic representation of the Macintosh and early Macintosh software, and the other looks like a plain boring screenshot. Yeah, very. <laughs> so on the Mac Paint box is the well-known image of a Japanese woman, and it's a black and white bitmap image, of course, because that's what Mac Paint was able to do. But the whole purpose of that screenshot is to show you the quality and detail of that pixel art that Mac Paint was able to pull off. Whereas on the other side, there's a word processing document open and the style menu has been pulled down so you can see all of the different types of text features that you can apply to the words in your document. And it is completely unmemorable, even though it's doing the exact same thing of showing off exactly what the software is capable of. I think the other interesting thing here as a trend moving forward is that this type of representation for a graphics program where you say we're going to have a particular image that shows the level of detail that you can accomplish with this software, and that's almost going to be the branding for the software, certainly carried forward. Think of Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator, where for several versions at a time, especially with Illustrator, I think for basically its entire existence, um, they've used some version of the famous Birth of Venus painting by Botticelli. And that has become their brand for that software. They're saying, look, this is a famous piece of art. You could create a famous piece of art with our amazing graphics software, as opposed to 
MacWrite where you could create a not-so-famous resume. <laughs> Speaking of famous pieces of art, I think that's a, that's a good segue into this next item on our list. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> didn't even plan it that way. Yes, so Apple actually also used some famous art in some other early software. I was just looking around for different kinds of Apple software boxes from the 80s and early 90s, and this was one that I didn't even think of as coming in a box. And it's the Macintosh PC Exchange software. And the reason I didn't think of it as coming in the box is because I think with either System 7 or 7.1, this feature was just rolled into the operating system. Right, as a control panel. Right, and this was what allowed you to read PC-formatted disks and then hopefully with the appropriate software be able to actually open up files from those disks. And the box art here is there are two hands... And one of them is holding a disc that has the words PC written on it. And it's that that stripy font that's supposed to be evocative of the IBM logo. This looks exactly like the icon for a, quote, PC disc. And the thing is, though, that if you get the reference, the two hands here are actually the hands of God and Adam. <laughs> and so this is from the creation of Adam that you might recognize from Michelangelo's The Sistine Chapel, <laughs> which is you know a huge monumental piece of art, and that's one of the most famous pieces of it. I think one of the interesting things here, the, the hands are kind of uh, moved around. It's definitely a take on that art, not a faithful representation of it. But the thing that I think is pretty funny is that the one that's actually holding the PC floppy disk is Adam, not God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was this was not a uh, this was not a gift from God. This is Adam going. What do I do with this? God uses apples, as as we know from the serpent story in Adam and Eve. That was terrible. <laughs> Before moving on, I think it's worth pointing out that the text on these boxes is all set in the font we remember from these days being associated with Apple. Their variant on Garamond, the kind of tall and and skinny serif font. And extremely tight kerning, like overly tight kerning. I mean, I'm looking at this one for PC Exchange and like six of the eight letters are touching each other. <laughs> so from here, we have something that became a system software feature. We can move into system software itself. And there are a few boxes that maybe we'll put uh, quick pictures in the show notes, but weren't particularly remarkable. Some of the system 7, 7.5 boxes had lots and lots of icons on them. And there was just like, here's here's a box and here's all of the new control panels and stuff that comes with the system software. This is, I mean, we made icons for this. That's a visual representation of it. What better way to show it off to you than here are the fancy new icons. And I should mention also, we're starting here at System 7. One of the things that was interesting in the tr transition between System 6 and System 7 is that in the System 7 era was the time that it started to become difficult to boot off of a single floppy disk, where to have a fully functioning system folder, it was doable. I mean, I know I did it in System 7, but especially by the time System 7.5 came around, we're talking about distributing operating systems either on multiple floppy disks or preferably on a CD, and then the actual media that you used to start your computer pretty much had to be a hard disk. So for System 6... 
it was definitely, I, when I was looking this up, I think it said that the basic system software was something like 320K. That's crazy to think about. Which is just mind-boggling. I mean, we've recorded 320K of audio since I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because of that, I think that that might have been the reason that, you know, Macintosh system disks, even if you wanted to charge an upgrade for the operating system, which certainly Apple did long into the OS X era, where it would be $129 for your next version of the operating system. But in an environment where floppy disks were just everywhere with the system software and being copied, maybe we missed it. Maybe there there was a box for this, but maybe it was just so ubiquitous that if there were any of those boxes, they've been long discarded. The first box that uh, visually stood out to us that we want to include was for System 7.1 which uh, Ed mentioned that like the first System 7, 7.0, had a couple of the icons from the system and its features, like a clipboard or a font face. Uh, but System 7.1, the box art for this, kind of fits in with the style that we're in today. Absolutely. If you took the words on here that said Macintosh System 7, which are again in the Garamond, and replaced it with iOS 7 in Helvetica, you go... Yeah, that's something that's representing iOS 7. The design on here is it's it may even be Helvetica, like a very bold, plain sans serif 7, and then it's in white and around that are all the different primary and secondary colors of light split out, so it's like it's like there's s- different spotlights shining down and in the areas where they all combine of course, you get the white light, and then everything else is the the primary and secondary colors around. It's a very interesting, I think, you know, pretty stunning design. And it's interesting that it's a minor update. I mean, yes, version numbers are not what they used to be. And System 7.1 was an important update, but it's an important update on the level of our annual update cycles for OS X now. You know, the the difference between even something like from Mavericks to Yosemite, okay, that was an important update, but it didn't, you know, it it wasn't a complete overhaul of the system where you say we need we need to really get out there with a big punchy marketing campaign for this. And just to reiterate that this is system seven, and it doesn't say seven point one in these big letters; it's just the seven. But you could take uh, Macintosh off and put iOS, remembering that iOS is when everything changed to flat and bright colors and Helvetica is the system font. Uh, it's kind of cool to see how these these align so well. Of course, the next one that we want to talk about was a major release of macOS, one that was far too long in the making, which was macOS 8. And uh, one of the funny things as I was... Uh, researching for this. I was looking for a picture of the Mac OS 8 box. I was doing a Google image search and I, I saw one. I went, that looks familiar. And it was actually a picture of the Mac OS 8 box that my family owned that I took and put on Flickr. <laughs> so that's the one that's going to be in our show notes. Uh, but looking at the the box itself, there's a dominant red color. The, the eight in the product name is red. And then there's a, a big geometric sans serif eight in white laid over a red square. And it's what's filling in the negative space in the two eight loops that 
just looks weird. It looks weird to me. Yes. So, well, one of them looks weird and the other one doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I guess what they're going for here is internet connectivity, right? Uh, because that was major push around the time that OS 8 was released. And so the bottom one is just a globe, blue marble, the earth. No problem with that. But the top one is also a perfect circle, but has the smiling face of a woman. And it's all, it's, it's sepia tone. So the, the earth is full color, but this woman is in a monochrome and she's smiling and, but she's really cropped in tight. <laughs> like you can't see the edges of her face. And it, it, it does. It's a, it's a weird effect because it almost looks like not human. <laughs> it's distinctive. I certainly remember this image. It was, it was in the marketing, like the print ads for the upgrade. And this was such a landmark release that I remember going to CompUSA and buying the box and shelling my, well, my parents shelling out however much it was to upgrade the family computer. So I remember this image very well. So they did a good job of making something that'll stick with you, but it's, it's unfortunate that it has to be because it's a little off-putting. Yeah. Well, but there are a couple other important things or minor features on here. So there's the six color Apple logo in the top left. Top right, though, is the new Finder icon, which you know, we now know as even smilier in more recent versions of OS X, but is still around. So that was, in, in essence, a new feature. Uh, and that icon and logo appeared on basically all software boxes to indicate that they supported Mac OS, as it was known now. But it's also important that that's on there to indicate, yeah, this is something new that you're going to see in macOS. And also in the bottom right, uh, there's an icon informing you that, yes, it comes on a CD-ROM, which is also important. But yeah, as for the history of OS 8 was so checkered and went on for so long with the Copeland project and being abandoned and coming in and rewriting it and the brand new interface, there was so much that was new in OS 8 that was both system-level features and obvious features to the user, that this box is so plain. And then also, even the text underneath, there are just four little bullet points, and they say, enhanced ease of use, Windows file compatibility, which we already had, leading multimedia tools, and integrated internet capabilities. It's, it's just so understated. Yeah, for what it truly represented. But... It persisted <laughs> because, again, there was another major update to OS 8, which was OS 8.5, a couple of years later. And it could have been the case that they did something like with System 7 and System 7.1, where they said, well, these are you know wildly different products and we're actually more prouder and think that the new one is more artistic. Or maybe you already know what the basic features are, so we don't have to put the basic features on the box. But instead... We just got the same old lady <laughs> and the same globe with a shift from red to green. Merry Christmas. And instead of having a red with a gradient to like darker red, this is a, it's like a pattern that I want to say was available as a desktop pattern in the appearance control panel of uh, like l little green elements. So it's, it's a, it's a very vibrant box. <laughs> But the thing that I remember about this is we have one version that's just the plain box, but the way that I remember seeing OS 8.5 being 
displayed graphically was a variant of that that was used in marketing that has the Sherlock hat perched on the corner of the box because Sherlock was a major feature in OS 8.5. The funny thing about that, though, is that (laughs) the way that my brain conceives of this is that I think that the lady is wearing the hat even though she is tiny <laughs> and the hat is huge in comparison. <laughs> if if you asked me how was, and I wasn't looking at this because, you know, I'm looking at it on the screen now, but if I wasn't looking at this and you said, how was OS 8.5 marketed? I'd be like, oh, it's the lady wearing the hat. <laughs> it's just so far off. Mac OS 8, like Ed said, was a, Huge undertaking. It was the Copeland project, which had a couple starts and stops. And then uh, it got revved, but still in not far enough away that it was keeping in within the OS 8 name, 8.5, 8.6. When we got to Mac OS 9, it was clear that Apple was already preparing for the transition to the Unix-based OS 10. And they had already established some of the visual language for OS 10, especially the Aqua interface. So the box art for OS 9 is a clear signal that this transition is about to happen. It's back to a plain white box, still with the Garamond font, but it is a simple 9, numeral 9, that's rendered as like a a lickable Aqua widget. This is the uh, first product box out of Johnny Ives' white room. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's extraordinarily simple. It just says... Nine. That's really all it says. There's also a variant of this box that calls to attention the same piece of software, Sherlock version 2. Some boxes of macOS 9 just had the Aqua 9. Some of them had a magnifying glass uh, held over a part of the 9. Yeah, so these relatively spare boxes for what was admittedly utilitarian software. It's your operating system. This was the beginning of a trend that then we would see for many years to come with the advent of OS X. Right. And for those of you who were there during the transition, Apple provided a public beta of OS X. So we'll put a link to a lot of the OS X box images all together on one desk in our show notes. And the public beta is included in this. It's very similar to what we were just talking about. It is a an X representing OS X, the Roman numeral X, uh, rendered in lickable glass aqua. And it's just a giant Garamond X. When OS X was officially released in 10.0, the box didn't really change much, except the name of the system, Mac OS X, was made more prominent. And uh, when 10.1 came out, which wasn't a huge update, uh, it mostly stayed the same again, except getting a little aqua-y bubble saying that this is actually 10.1, not 10.0. This was the last of the aqua letters to appear on a OS box. And one of the things that I noticed that was interesting was if you weren't thinking about the interface at the time, these also matched Apple's hardware. There was a pretty well-unified uh aesthetic here with the different colors that were being used. And so I, I I thought, did they actually do this? I wasn't sure. And then I looked it up and yes, it's true. So if you remember the iBook, the original clamshell toilet seat with a handle iBook, 
it came in two colors to start, tangerine and blueberry. And the 9 of OS 9 perfectly matches tangerine. And the 10 of OS 10 perfectly matches blueberry. And then I thought, but wait, there was one other version of an Apple operating system that was in development then. It was OS 10 server. And believe it or not, if you look at the early versions of OS 10 server and the box art there, it is the Aqua Lickable Garamond X in gray graphite, just like the later edition of the iBook, which also was available in graphite. So it was just a whole unified design language for Apple at the time was this particular color palette and particular style. But with later versions of OS X, they started to get a little bit different. Right. As we all came to know and love, the code names for each major release of OS X were big cats. OS 10.2 was Jaguar. And on the box for Jaguar, Apple fully owned up to this, just embraced it and leaned into it by rendering the giant Serif X uh, blazoned across the, the, the box with Jaguar print. You, you just know that there was some designer in Apple who was just having fun in Photoshop. He's like, oh, I can do a clip. I can clip this layer to the X. And, you know, somebody walked by and went, run with it. <laughs> this is also in Jaguar, the font used on the box changes from the now maybe antiquated feeling Garamond Serif to the much more modern looking Myriad Pro the sans serif font that is still on some things. The X itself, though, is still the serif outline at this point. Looks almost Garamondi, but I think they they uh, made it a little bit bolder and a little bit rounder um, to to allow the the cat pattern to shine through. <laughs> but then clearly, someone decided, ah, let's let's not be so forthcoming with our big cat code names because ten point three Panther is now a black box with a foil-stamped Serif X uh, emblazoned across the front. A very serious-looking operating system software box. And 10.4 Tiger was thematically similar, except the X is much bigger now and sans Serif. Yeah, it's just a cross at this point. (laughs) Yeah. And with... 10.4 10.4 Tiger's major, or one of 10.4 Tiger's major new features being Spotlight, there's a subtle spotlight illuminating the middle of the box. Oh, clever. I had not put that together. Ah. It's very much like the Sherlock magnifying glass, but less on the nose. It is, yeah. And 10.4 Tiger was the end of like giant full-size boxes that took up lots of space on retail shelves. Well, and as I remember having these... We put them like on a bookshelf, and they were the same size as reference books. After 10.4 Tiger, we kind of had a lull in operating system updates due to, I think, two major factors. One, the transition from PowerPC to Intel happened, so we kind of got two versions of Tiger. And development on the iPhone got into full swing so they could get it out the door, which famously delayed the next release of OS X, Leopard. The box for Leopard is uh, not much bigger in length and width than, I think, like a a jewel case. Because at this point, Apple is getting conscious about like all the 
greenhouse emissions and shipping giant things of what is mostly air and manuals that are increasingly becoming more digital. So these are tiny boxes and it's, it's another big sans serif S X, uh, but it's over the kind of spacey background of time machine. Yeah. And I think this was definitely fitting in with Apple's packaging in general around that time. This is probably about the same time that iPod packaging started seriously shrinking where the first few generations of the iPod came in big cube-shaped boxes that were about, I don't know, six, seven, eight inches on a side and perfectly cubic. But there's nothing cube-shaped about an iPod, right? I mean, you know, you need a box that's at least as tall as the device is, but a lot of that was air. And they decided that, yes, they were going to use less materials, more friendly materials. And yes, definitely as numbers were going up, I mean, you got to put them on a container ship and get them across the ocean if you're building them in China. (laughs) So, you know, there were certain considerations there where they wanted to miniaturize the packaging. And so the software packaging went along the same route. And I think other companies certainly followed suit around the same time where they said, we don't need giant boxes for this stuff anymore especially if you're not putting a physical manual in the box. There's no real need to have anything larger than the physical media. Again, like you said, the size of a jewel case with maybe a little bit extra in there. Maybe you have a small booklet and maybe you want to be able to fit a little bit more marketing type on the the sides and the outside of the box. But that's about it. After Leopard came Snow Leopard. And with this, Apple is uh, moving towards digital distribution. I think Snow Leopard was the first arrival of the Mac App Store um, towards the end of its life cycle. And uh, with that must have come a newfound appreciation for photos of the big cat upon which the, uh, the operating system is named. I forgot how ridiculous the Snow Leopard looked because... I'm looking at it now, and it just says Mac OS X Snow Leopard, and there's a picture of... There is such a thing as a Snow Leopard, but it really just looks like it's a cat that has been hit in the face with a snowball. I actually, as we're talking about this, just re- remembered that the photo of the Snow Leopard that's on the the product box and in product marketing was subtly edited from the source material because the original... <laughs> depicted a snow leopard that must have just eaten a kill and has little flecks of blood around its muzzle, which of course you don't want people thinking of when they're wanting to upgrade their system. It's to- a killer app. <laughs> yeah, it's a killer app. Um, so uh, we'll put a link to a comparison of the original and apples in our show notes. One other way that you could get OS ten snow leopard was in a different kind of box, which I'm looking at now which was the Mac box set, which is just a bizarre thing to to say in 2015, almost 2016 now. What what would be in a Mac box set? Well, it was a package of multiple pieces of software, and the Mac box set included iLife, iWork, and the latest version of the operating system. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It really is bizarre to think about this. There was one, like I'd said, for Snow Leopard, and there was one actually available previously uh, for just regular Leopard. Well, I mean, the the reason that it's so bizarre now, in hindsight, is the fact that 
the reason that you would put something together like this, a box set of anything, you know, I mean, things that you might still buy box sets of, like uh, Blu-ray discs, especially for like a TV series, where you're going to get you know, eight discs that has the entire entire 30 episodes on it. And you buy a box set because it comes in some nice packaging, and also usually because you get a discount. Yep. And so that was the whole purpose of the Mac box set, was that you were going to get three packages of software at a reduced price. But if you think about it, I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, OS X, iLife, and iWork. You can't reduce the price of them anymore today because they're all free. So that's why the Mac box set seems like such a odd transition point was because it was right at the time where digital distribution was coming in. And now we see that at least in Apple's vision of digital distribution, the whole goal is to get things, at least consumer products, down to free and included with the system. So it's it's an odd one. <laughs> also, the fact that just the, the art on it is just uh, a picture of the three boxes side by side. It's just like, this this is a set. There are boxes. If you bought them separately, they would look like this, but they are all in this box. <laughs> uh, speaking of digital distribution, the next major release of OS X was Lion. And with Lion, the Mac App Store has definitely arrived, and it was the primary means of distributing the new OS. Apple really wished that it was the only one. <laughs> exactly. For those of you who maybe couldn't afford to download a multi-gigabyte file over your home internet connection, Apple did provide software, a, a physical software version of OS X Lion. It wasn't on a CD, though. It was on a neat little thumb drive that has its own packaging. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It appears to be just a, like a piece of cardboard in the same dimensions as their uh, like CD size boxes. Right. You're like, you wish there was a CD in here, but no luck. It's just a tiny little thin flash drive uh, kind of mounted in the middle. On the front, it has a, a very small photo of a line. It's got to be like less than an inch wide. Uh, and the same one that they used in all their marketing material for the OS. And on the back, it has two simple instructions. Plug in the thing and click on the line that comes up on your screen. And uh, and that was the end of Apple distributing operating systems in any kind of physical form. As we all know now, we get on our computers at around 10 a.m. Pacific time on the day that a new OS is released and hammer Apple servers as we download that new operating system. So I think that finishes up our Apple boxes that we wanted to look at. And there were some slight oddities in there. But for the most part, Apple being a big, straightforward company has fairly straightforward ways of advertising and shipping their software products in the past. But now I think we want to transition a little bit and go to some more out there artwork and packaging that was created by third parties who were looking to get a leg up on uh, distributing their software by having some memorable software packaging. And let's start with packages that were memorable for their the, the actual box or container that they came in. And my first choice for this was the 2001 edition of Microsoft Office, which came in a little weird plastic clamshell case that was like a very robust version of 
the smallest CD wallet you could leave in your car. And it actually had space on the inside for multiple discs. It only needed one CD, but it had a bunch of little sleeves. So if you just felt like carrying around your Microsoft Office CD wallet for maybe all your all your favorite software, or if you were so inclined, all your favorite music CDs, they had the solution for you right there. <laughs> it's exactly right. This case says to me, okay, it's 2001. How can we get the kids interested in productivity software these days? Don't they carry around CDs? Yeah, let's go with that. Um, and it's worth noting that this is 2001, which was well before Apple downsized their software boxes, uh, like we were talking about previously. And I think uh, Microsoft didn't really stick with this. There were a couple releases afterwards that moved into slightly bigger boxes, somewhere in between roughly the size of the CD it's on and the full reference manual-sized box. Yeah, around this time, I got Microsoft Office from college, and they literally just gave you a paper sleeve with the disc in it that said, this is the educational version only like, do not copy it, do not give it to other people. And so at the at the campus computer store, they just had a drawer full of them. There was no packaging at all. <laughs> Some earlier software that I remember for coming in a weird shape container. Again, one of those ones that I remember seeing it stacked up in CompUSA. And clearly what they were going for was that effect of someone seeing it in a store and being interested was... Uh, another piece of graphics software, and this was uh, this was Fractal Painter, which was later bought and known as Corel Painter. And I think from version three of Fractal Painter, it came in a paint can. There is no box for this software. It is actually a can. It has a metal lid on the outside of the can. It says Painter 3 for Macintosh. There's a picture of another paint can on the can, just in case you weren't sure that it was about paint. Um, and to, to top it all off, I mean, how do you carry around a paint can? They have a little wire handle that goes over the top. So literally, you, you would pick up this paint can with your software in it, and that would be how you would get your new graphics program. You could go do some painting. It's the ultimate skew morph. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm not sure if there was a CD in there or floppy disks. I really don't know. There's room for both. Room for both. I mean, it could be smaller if it was floppy disks, I think. Another one that came in an even more bizarre package. I mean, the the fractal painter one, it's cute, right? But it makes total sense. Things are actually still to this day shipped in cylindrical containers. Like it makes it makes sense. It packs fairly well. But one of the weirdest software packages that I've ever seen um, was for a video game that I think is pretty well-beloved. I, I think someone asked us on Twitter, hey, can you talk about this game? We're not going to get too much into the game uh, today, but the game is Spectre VR, which I never owned a copy of this game, but I remember playing... There was maybe like a light version of it. There definitely was. It came pre-installed on one of our machines. Okay, yeah, I think that was the only version that I played. But then there was a more commercial version that was called Spectre VR. And the the main gameplay was that you have a three-dimensional tank and you would pilot your tank around and try to uh, avoid other tanks and shoot them down. And it was 
pretty awesome 3D graphics for the time. If you want to think of a point of comparison, if you don't know the game, to about what level of 3D graphics we're talking about, it was slightly better than Wireframe. I think the light version was maybe only Wireframe. But the the commercial version was a little bit better than Wireframe, kind of like uh, original Star Fox era graphics. So original Star Fox era graphics were low polygon count, um, and, you know, these polygon solids. So the, I mean, a rectangle is also, you know, <laughs> a box is also a polygon, low polygon solid, but they decided to go with something a little bit more interesting. And the box is not rectangular by any means. It's got kind of a, an extra wing off to the side. It, it kind of reminds me of like the uh, Star Trek insignia. Yeah formed into a box and it looks like there's a flap at the top that opens up and this version it is distributed on a cd so there's apparently a cd tucked away in there somewhere i don't know how they stacked these boxes like i can't even imagine putting this on a shelf like there's there's no flat surface that you could put more than one of i mean you could lay one on a table but then what do you do with the second one where does it go? They don't tessellate. They don't fit together in any way, shape, or form. And there are, like, no right angles on this box. No, like, may- maybe one. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not enough. <laughs> so, um, definitely a distinctive packaging, but I don't think particularly useful. One of the other packages that's uh, maybe a little bit similar uh, to this, but did actually, <laughs> I can imagine these fitting together on a shelf, were the boxes for a well-loved Mac original game series, which was Marathon. I think we've been meaning for a while, we have on our topics list, uh, to do pre-Microsoft Bungie someday. So for everyone who's going, yes, Marathon, it, it, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. But today, it's mostly about the box, not what's inside of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, these boxes are triangular shaped. Like the base is a triangle. The back of the box is the flat plane. And then the front of the box has the two sides coming to a point in the middle, but there's a square recess, a square divot in the front face of this box. And the marathon logo is kind of embedded on a pop-out flap in the middle of this depression. Um, and this is true for the first, second, and third installments in the series, just with different color schemes. Yeah, they stuck with this. And that meant that uh, you could put all of these together and it would kind of make sense and you could find a place for them. And uh, for those of you who are mostly excited about post-Microsoft Bungie, aka the Halo series, you would probably still recognize the Marathon logo because it's hidden all over Halo as a nice little Easter egg and callback to their the past. Uh, moving on, let's start looking at some third-party boxes that were regularly shaped, but had some irregular artwork on them. Yeah, the first one isn't too weird. Um, it's a piece of software that I remember relying on, and we've mentioned it uh, before on the show, which is Ram Doubler from Connectix. This is an example of a piece of software where what the software does is only sort of subtly hinted at in the artwork, but the... The artwork for the Ram Doubler box is two big lightning bolts. And I guess each one of them represents some RAM. And there are two of them, so your your, your RAM is effectively doubled. 
there, there was also uh, a couple other products from Connectix that were kind of in the same series. There was Speed Doubler, and they had uh, sort of a uniform branding look for all of the Doubler products and a couple other utilities that they had. For Speed Doubler, though, um, like these lightning bolts, which appear to be made out of a metallic uh, finish and coming down diagonally from uh, the top left, for Speed Doubler, basically the same layout of the box, but instead of lightning bolts, there was a eagle. It was gold and made out of metal, and he was going very fast because you were doubling your speed. Uh, something else that I, I think of when I think of Ram Doubler, and actually even thought that they were the same company for a while, but I'm wrong, is Conflict Catcher. Conflict Catcher was Cassidy and Green. The artwork associated with Conflict Catcher is a nice little sketch slash drawing of a guy out on safari who just is trying to catch all the conflicts. <laughs> he's got a, <laughs> he's got a big old butterfly net and uh, like a pith helmet. And he's, uh, he's got a couple of conflict extensions, conflicting extension icons in his net already. And there are a couple others buzzing around his head like little birds. Yeah. I think that was uh version three. And then in version four, he's like a, like a lion tamer with a hoop. And the extensions are jumping through the hoop. They're like rowdy and all out of control on the one side, and then they're all neatly stacking up on the other side. <laughs> Again, it's whimsical, but it actually gives a good indication of what the software does. Yeah, and it's it's good branding. Like I definitely remember this guy. And uh, when this is this is going to date me and paint a not accurate picture of me, I promise. But when the cartoon the wild thornberries came out i thought that the dad who has kind of attained meme status uh in more modern times was the conflict catcher guy <laughs> that's amazing but the the conflict catcher guy i don't know if he has a name he's just one of many representations of software where the software has been turned into a character it's anthropomorphized and this was pretty popular for Lots of different software around this time where, especially if it was fulfilling a role that someone did, uh, one that I can think of that immediately comes to mind, I'm looking at a piece of software, different piece of software from that company right now, but I'm thinking of Macromedia Director, where it was just a guy with a big megaphone. He's like, he's the director. Of course, you know what a movie director does and what a stereotypical movie director looks like. And that's it. So, okay, the name of the software is Director, um, and done. The branding is done. It does itself. <laughs> um, but a slightly different one from Macromedia that I had put in our show outline, because it always struck me as a little bit weird, is uh, Macromedia Freehand, which, of course, was a long-running competitor to Illustrator, which has now more or less, uh, I think it's pretty much dead now. There was there was a campaign a few years ago, like Save Freehand, after it had changed hands many times from one company to another. I mean, it started as Aldous Freehand, um, and then the IP and the code was sold many times and updated several times along the way, but eventually phased out, um, I think probably when Macromedia was sold. But in the heyday of Macromedia Freehand, they had very strong branding for this product, and it is, I can only describe it as a large purple man who is bald, pointing off into the distance 
with a giant pen. Like if the guy is six feet tall, the pen is five feet long and he's wielding it like a javelin. Um, also the guy, he looks like one of those, um, anatomical models that shows you the muscle system where it doesn't look like he's wearing any clothes, but it also doesn't look like he has any skin, but he's got like big abs and all the muscles are defined on all of his limbs. And he's definitely going to stab you with that big pen. <laughs> um, so while Illustrator, on the other hand, was being kind of very demure with the birth of Venus, um, the the competition was was coming at you with a larger than life pen yeah very aggressive looking yeah but it, i mean it filled the box art and it was you know it was obviously dramatic branding and the fact that i remembered this branding you know some of these things that we went hunting for we went like let's find box art let's go through see the ones that are our favorites but this one i didn't even have to think twice i i the only thing i had to think twice on was which company owned it at the time one other piece of software that i think is maybe a little bit less well known than even freehand, but was one that I followed for a long time. I I coveted this software for a long, long time. I wanted to do 3D design on our family's Mac. And the intro level 3D software for the Mac was Ray Dream Designer. I remember there was one summer that I the thing that was holding me back from getting the software was that it required 16 megs of RAM. And we only had 8 megs of RAM. And my parents came up with this scheme whereby doing chores around the house. And uh, my dad was also uh, running a campaign. He was running for judge. I Like helping with the campaign um, that I could earn basically kilobytes of RAM and try to work my way up to 8 megabytes. And so like he was sending out mailings for the campaign and it was like every stamp I put on an envelope was one kilobyte of RAM. <laughs> that's a that's a long way. Oh yeah. Like it, it took me all summer and I think I got to like six and a half megs and my parents said, well, we'll round up. But I never got the software. Oh. Because <laughs> it was like $200 more. Yeah. For the intro level 3D software. But I remember, you know, always looking at, you know, you would get uh, like a Mac warehouse or Mac mall catalog in the mail. Always just like, oh, I want that. Um, especially because the box art was so cool. And it, again, it was supposed to show off the capabilities of the software. You know, it's rendering software. So you want to have some really great 3D art on the cover. With uh, Raydream Designer 3.0, uh, the art on the cover was this sky scene with like a fantastical flying machine, like a Da Vinci-esque flying machine you know it's got wings and a balloon and it looks pretty cool to be honest <laughs> um but things got even weirder and better with later versions the one that i remember was uh raydream designer 4 uh it actually says these words on the box it says armored mouse <laughs> and there is a robot mouse with what appeared to be tiny tiny rocket launchers on its hindquarters and um, some sort of uh, jet propulsion system for its back legs. Um, and it's got glowing eyes. This thing is evil. <laughs> but nicely rendered. It's a chrome finish, so you can see that the rendering software is able to handle the reflections. You know, very, very cool to a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs> In later versions, uh, 
they again were trying to show things off. Uh, the name of the software changed from Dream Designer to the, then Dream Studio, which had additional utilities. Uh, Ray Dream Studio version four had a like steampunk Pegasus. It's basically a mechanical flying horse, um, which is also pretty nifty. And oh, and what they're showing here is there's some sort of uh, like grayed out or translucent images of the legs because, of course, there was some animation software that was included in Dream Studio as opposed to Dream Designer. Um, then it got weird. <laughs> Ray Dream Studio 5. I also remember looking at this one in the catalogs. I don't know how to explain this other than that it's it's a seahorse that is also a submarine um, with a spotlight shooting out of... Well, I don't think seahorses have belly buttons, but if they did... This one would have a spotlight there. Yeah, it's it's it has some kind of submersible pod affixed to its back, and it's a it's like a very dragon looking seahorse, and it's coloring and the scales, the pod and everything. Though this looks like something that you would find in one of the later sequels of the Mist series, which again, like okay, everyone knew that Mist and Riven were pioneering 3d games of their time so okay it's trying to tell you what with this software you could make stuff that looks just as cool meanwhile there was a competitor uh that was probably the next level up on the 3d production chain which was the competition from strata and (laughs) (laughs) i i cannot explain this early version of strata studio pro box it is a Dali-esque hellscape. There is no other way to... I mean, if you if you know the paintings of Salvador Dali, imagine that someone took that as an inspiration, but then decided that they had to show off every feature of a 3D graphics program. There is, on the one side, some sort of landscape scene with what looks like dunes in the background and a guy walking in front and a film strip but then coming out of the purple sky is what appears to be Luke Skywalker's animatronic hand shooting lightning bolts. This is only half the box. <laughs> On the other side, there's a reflective orb that's divided into four quadrants, each of which is different, with a spaceship flying around it. On behind that is a like stage spotlight. And in the bottom is some sort of checkerboard. With potentially some kind of dinosaur? I'm looking at this zoomed in uh, on the checkerboard. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, but there's way too much going on here. The funny thing is, in later versions of Strata Studio Pro, they went with the same general design, where they have this box and the checkerboard, but they got rid of all the crazy stuff. It's just gray and a chrome box and checkerboard. Again, showing you, like, it has a ray tracer. You can do reflections on realistically textured objects. But, like, minus the pile of crazy that's on this box. Speaking of pile of crazy, I think this this next thing on our list is... Oh, it's it's not getting any more normal from here to the end of the episode. (laughs) It's not even explainable as to why they went with this. I mean, like, you could stretch, but there's really no reason for... Software called Real PC, an emulator for Windows and DOS on your Macintosh. And one of the better ones, you know, it was up there with Virtual PC before then we got into the modern era with uh, parallels and those sorts of things. This version of Real PC 
that we will put in the show notes is the box art is dominated by a black and white photo of uh, a man wearing glasses. He's got a shocked expression on his face and all of his hair is standing up on end. Like he's like he's touching one of those uh, generators at the science museum. And where his mouth would be is a big red sticker that says new low price. Great performance. <laughs> There's nothing here. There's nothing here that would make me think like, ah, yes, I'm looking to emulate uh, windows on my Macintosh. Oh, yeah, this guy, this black and white photo of a guy with his his hair all shooting straight out of his head. Yep. One one more with uh, with exasperated people on them. This is a piece of software I had not heard of until just a couple days ago. It's apparently a very early piece of Macintosh software. I found this on an eBay listing, and uh, it was for System 1. And apparently, whoever created the software thought that the Finder was not adequate for managing files and folders, which I think even in System 1, you know, is kind of the purpose of the Finder. Uh, the software is called I Know It's Here Somewhere, and on the on the front of the box is just a cartoon of a person whose glasses have been knocked off. Their hands are forward in a pleading gesture and they're just drowning in papers. <laughs> and on the back of the box are, are screenshots that do indicate to me that they think that like this should be basically a finder replacement. It looks like the name of the software. I know it's here somewhere had to be stylized as a, a quote because there are quotation marks everywhere. Yes. It is in quotation marks. Grocer's quotes. Uh, yeah, this is the Ed found a listing of uh, like the original box, including all the the floppy and the manual on eBay, which we'll link to and hopefully uh, won't get taken down because it's a buy it now option. It's not a live auction. Hop on that. Forty six dollars and fifty five cents US. It's a steal. It's not just a steal for the software itself. Included in the box is the uh, the card that you could mail in. And I hope that this offer is still valid for a uh, a free year of a personal computing magazine. A magazine I didn't even know existed. Same. <laughs> well, that's where it ends for real software packaging. But I I hope there's somewhere out someone out there going, please, please, please get to the fake software packaging. Because there's one piece of fake software packaging in the Mac Pantheon that exceeds all others. Yes. We are talking about the fake 1980s Atari-style software packaging for four of Panic Software's applications. We all know and love Panic. They've been a Mac and then broader Mac and iOS shop since the beginning and putting out stuff we've talked about on this show, Audion, the, the early MP3 player, uh, current favorites like Coda, and Transmit, and Status Board. And in December 2009, maybe as a fun end-of-the-year treat, they posted this blog post that was basically following the question, what if our software was distributed in these 1980s Atari-style boxes? Because I think for maybe the entirety of Panic's existence, they've distributed their software online. You download Transmit, you download Audion, sometimes in the Mac App Store, recently, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> and so this, this seems like it was just an all-out fun exercise to imagine and execute those like lavish paintings of uh, realistic-ish uh, human characters embodying the whatever the Atari game was about in different poses and 
different fantastical environments. And I think we're just going to wrap up our episode now by talking through the four software boxes Panic commissioned uh, for themselves. <laughs> Where do we begin? Uh, the way that that uh, the biggest image we could find is laid out, um, let's say if we start uh, at the top left and go clockwise, we'll start with Panic's candy bar, which is an easy way to replace icons, including system-level icons, uh, that has sadly been retired now. So how do you represent that in terms of 80s-style Atari art? Well, there's some sort of conveyor belt factory system that's putting together candy and icons, but front and center, and this was a feature of these Atari boxes that you would often see the same character twice or more in different poses, there's a big, fat chef (laughs) who is mixing up the candy, who is holding a picture of the finder icon, who in the top right corner looks extraordinarily angry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And this is all is it's like a a weird netherworld version of the the candy assembly line from the classic I Love Lucy episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, there are robots. There are robots wearing little chef hats. There's there's one robot near the top right of the frame who kind of looks bewildered at what's going on. The robots also look a lot like Bender from Futurama. Uh, and then there's a little little tableau at the lower right corner with one robot chef smacking another robot chef in the face and knocking his chef hat off. Is, is he pieing him? Yeah, he is. You're right. <laughs> Throwing a pie into the face. Of course, if if you didn't know what this was for, you would have absolutely no idea. Which is exactly in the style of the Atari boxes. So I mean, I didn't I didn't own an Atari. I I'm a long time Nintendo person, um, and Nintendo box art was completely different. But these these Atari boxes where they had a standard font uh, for the title of the game, and then it was a plain background, and then a square or rectangular painting it was you know literally painting art in the center that was supposed to represent the action and uh subtly kind of dominating the lower uh left quadrant of the painting but behind all of the action is the actual icon for candy bar or what you can see of it that's not being obscured by this fat chef and the candy assembly line next up is coda which is probably the calmest and sanest of these although there's still quite a bit going on this is like it's it's all green but it's like it's like a genie pruning a bonsai coda is of course panics all-in-one website uh, authoring software and its icon is a very tranquil leaf and so of course the the shape of this leaf is in the background of the entire painting. And there is this general theme of uh, trees. There's the bonsai, uh, a man trimming it. There's a, I think like some kind of stork or heron perched on, on his scissors. There's a bald guy who kind of looks like Johnny Ive. And he's got like his eyes closed. Like he's listening to some, some really calm music. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of like a Zen garden theme going on in here. There's another guy behind this bald guy who's, Looking off to the right, his hands are clasped in a kind of a prayer gesture. And there's some there's some uh, monospace font code lurking among the leaves. And very subtly at the base of the, the tree is the Panic logo. 
Next up is Unison. <laughs> Unison is an explosion of rainbows. Coming out of uh, like a original Macintosh 128K. Uh, there's so much about this that's just so funny. Uh, there's a prominent box of Kleenex next to the computer, which I think is implying that the the curly-haired, bespectacled guy using Unison is downloading a certain kind of material. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Unison, of course, was is Panic's uh, Usenet client. In the rainbow coming out of the Macintosh is a couple of things like film reels, uh, film projectors, think uh, maybe some kind of record. All of these media files that you would be able to download via Usenet. And an, an old school television that I'm 99% sure has Hulk Hogan on it. <laughs> and uh, a nice little pixelated icon that I think represents chat or, or messaging or something. And this is one of those ones where there's multiple versions of the same character. And the one he's like very intently using the computer. But then the one that's the largest... Um, he's not quite facing straight out of the image. He's kind of looking off to the side. And the face that he's making can only be described in sound. It looks like he's going, hey. <laughs> yep. Hey, hey. This one is, I think, the closest callback to any particular Atari game. We'll link to uh, a gallery of many Atari games but this is a really, really, really close to Super Breakout. So on the Super Breakout uh, box, the, the tiles in the game are represented by rainbow colors, and you can see that some of the, the, the blocks have been broken. And then I didn't know this was the, the backstory of Breakout. There's an astronaut. And in the astronaut's visor, the rainbow pattern is reflected and curved and also in this the rainbow of media that's shooting out of the the mac is reflected in the guy's sunglasses as he's yelling <laughs> um so definitely uh definitely break out there break out <laughs> to reference an old obscure flash game <laughs> and the final panic software artwork that we'll discuss is transmit God, I never knew FTP was so exciting. <laughs> FTP is not a way that you get files onto a web server. It's how you transport hazardous cargo across the desert. <laughs> yep. Uh, pan the icon for Transmit, I think, is one of the most beloved icons in Macintosh software. It's the isometric uh, little cargo truck with the, the yellow cab and the purple cargo load that has the Panic logo on the side. Uh, I'm a big fan of Panic's Ripoff Express page, where they point out where um, their mostly their icons, but some of their other graphical assets have just been wholesale ripped off and used in other people's works. And I think the the transmit truck is the the most frequently copied piece. And so it's it's the like it's the driving, pardon my pun, metaphor for this artwork. It's yeah, it's like. Off-road trucking almost in the desert. There's some very earnest talking into walkie-talkies that's going on. And lots of motion blur. Lots of lots of directional arrows, lens flares, maybe even a doubled sun like on Tatooine. Yes, this one's happening on Tatooine. <laughs> yeah, a whole bunch of truck drivers. One of them has sunglasses on as he's talking to his walkie-talkie. The other one doesn't. There are a couple smaller ones. Maybe who are, he has like a hand cart ready to load up or unload the trucks. 
There's so much going on here. There is a lot going on here. And like we said, Panic actually sold some of these items in, in their store, and I am a damn fool for not having purchased them when they were available. Likewise, we will put a link to the Wayback Machines capture of the Panic store when these were available in case you want to punish yourself and wonder why you didn't buy these when they were available. Because they are glorious. They really are. So glad that uh, like Panic has stuck around. Oh, absolutely. There's there's you know constant talk about how uh, the the more indie side of software development is a tough market to sustain, and uh, and the Mac App Store is doing developers fewer and fewer favors in terms of uh, like you know demo versions and and upgrade pricing. But I'm glad that Panic is still in there developing software for the Mac and like really remaining a big part of indie Mac software development culture. Keeping a sense of humor and a sense of great design. Yeah. So I think that about wraps it up for our tour through boxes, ordinary, strange, and fictional. <laughs> if there was a favorite software box that you remember from the past, especially if you have a picture of it or a link to a picture of it, and you've been yelling the whole podcast, why did you not talk about it? Please send it our way. Uh, you can do that either by going to our website, there's a contact form there, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. You can also find the show notes for this website in your podcast app, or as always on our website, you can go to simplebeep.com slash episodes. If you'd like to contact or follow us individually on Twitter, we're there too. I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks, and we will see you next in the new year. Happy Boxing Day. Ooh, and Happy New Year.